So I invite you to open with me to Genesis chapter 24. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1. Genesis chapter 24 and verse 1. You know, when I typically put together my sermon calendar, I, I mark the major holidays, of course. We want to make sure that at Easter we're preaching something related to Easter, Christmas time, the same kind of thing. And so I, I typically plan that whole calendar out. Y'all that know me well, I, uh, I like to be organized, and so I plan that whole calendar out like a year in advance. We work through that. There is one holiday, though, I failed to mark this year, and that is Time Change Sunday. Uh, so uh, this morning, on Time Change Sunday, we're covering more ground in Scripture probably than I've ever covered with you as your pastor. Uh, looking back, I could have probably said, you know, maybe not best to cover all of Genesis 24 when it's raining outside and also everyone's going to be a little bit sleepy. But we're going to work through this together. Uh, Genesis chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, by the way. Uh, but it covers one major narrative. You can't really break it up. I mean, it's, it's the story of when Isaac meets Rebecca, when God provides a wife for Isaac and continues his promise through the family line of Abraham. And so because it's one story, we can't really break it up. We've got to kind of work through this together uh, all at one time, and we're going to try to be as efficient as possible this morning, working through, again, all 67 verses of Genesis chapter 24. Con continuing this series, by the way, uh, Genesis, Roots of Our Redemption. We talked about this a little bit last week, how uh, God's plan for redemption was not something like God's plan B. It was always God's plan A. He was always working this out from creation forward. It's not like the, the fall of man and sin caught God by surprise in some way. No, he was always working this plan out. And these roots run deep throughout Scripture. And we have to be diligent to see how God's working this out. And we see this uh, especially playing itself out in this 24th chapter of Genesis. Let's recap a little bit last week, though, uh, because we saw... Uh, some of these roots, and, and we saw how God continued to fulfill his promise to Abraham in a little bit of an unconventional way. Uh, you got to go back to Genesis chapter 12 and verse 7 to understand uh, really the, the significance of even this chapter we're looking at today. Genesis 12, 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring, I will give this land. To your offspring, I'll give two things. I'll give your land. I'll give you this land. But the first thing was the offspring, right? He says, I got to give you a family, and then I'm going to give to your family the land. And so two things are wrapped up in the promise of God. Last week, we looked at how the promise of land, how God delivered on that promise. Abraham, we saw, he didn't own any land. And his wife, Sarah, had died. This was a big deal. Uh, this was a moment that, that placed Abraham at tension with his situation, and certainly the promise of God held in the balance because he needed to find a burial plot for Sarah. And we saw that the down payment of God's promise of land uh, was not conquering the kingdom of Canaan or anything like that. No, God's down payment was a burial plot situated in the land where he was living. So God began to deliver on that promise. In Genesis chapter 24, though, we see another part of that promise intention, though. It's not the land this time. No, it's that family line, that notion that offspring will come through Abraham. You see, we find, of course, at the end of chapter 23 that, that Sarah has died. And she was the one who was the mother of Israel, so to speak. And so there was no one left 
to continue that family line. So God had to work something out. And again, it's not his plan B. He's always working things out ahead of us. And so we see in this chapter that God provides a wife for Isaac. And he does this in a most unique way. You know, we, we think about God unfolding his plans sometimes through supernatural means. Uh, you know, we think about things like in the book of Exodus, we have the plagues in Egypt, right? And God is certainly in those moments working in a very supernatural way. Uh, we don't typically see the Red Sea parting in our day. Uh, we don't see plagues of locusts or the rivers turning to blood. God help us if that happens. But we don't see those things happen, right? These are supernatural things. And I think sometimes we miss God working because we're looking for him to work in some sort of supernatural way. We're looking for a supernatural healing, or we're looking for him to, to walk us through a situation in a supernatural way. Uh, maybe it's you trying to balance your checkbook and working, hoping God works in a supernatural way to provide, right? Amen? Uh, whatever it is, and we have actually some branches of Christianity or, or, or something of the sort that says, listen, we're counting on God to work in this way. But in reality, God often is working through ordinary ways. And if we're not careful, we miss that. Because when we overlook that, we overlook the way God is working already. We overlook his goodness already in our lives. If you're taking notes this morning, this is going to guide our time together. God often works through ordinary means to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. He's working through ordinary means to accomplish something extraordinary. That extraordinary thing, by the way, is the plan of redemption. In Genesis 24, we're not going to see a miracle. We're not going to see God do something supernatural. No, God's going to work through some very ordinary channels that are actually in keeping with the culture of that time. And God works through those things, and he continues his plan of redemption. Let's look at this together in Genesis 24, verses 1 through 9. I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's word just going to read the first nine verses to kind of set the tone for where we're headed. The word of the Lord to us is this. Abraham was now old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household who managed all that he owned, place your hand under my thigh, and I will, give, I will have you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live. But you'll go to my land and to my family to take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me uh, to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land that you came from? Abraham answered him, make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He will send his angel before you, and you can take a wife for my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow you, though, then you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under his master Abraham's thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. God, we thank you that your plans are ever unfolding before us. And Lord, I pray that we always see it. 
God, even this morning as we look at your word, I pray we see your plans unfolding. God, that you indeed are guiding the steps of those here in Genesis, but God, you're also guiding our steps. God, I pray that we will be challenged by this, and Lord, we'll be encouraged, even though there's some things we have to wrestle with here. And God, I pray that we leave here changed people. God, Lord, it's only by your word, uh, Lord, that you uh, minister to your people. It's only by your word that people are called to salvation. It's only by your word that people are called to repent of their sins. And so, God, I pray that this morning you'll use your word in such a way. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Again, God's working out his plans all throughout the scriptures, but we're going to kind of hone in on what he's doing here in Genesis 24. You know, there's a word that we're going to bring up again and again this morning, and I want to make sure I define it very clearly. It's the word providence. Providence. And I've got a place there for you to fill in the definition, and and, and I'm going to share that with you in just a moment, that particular definition. But let me begin to uh, kind of unwrap this word for you a little bit, kind of the origins of this word. It's a big, important uh, word in Scripture. It's a, it's, a, it's a character quality of God that we've got to hold on to, all right? This isn't something we can kind of, you know, chuck to the side and, and not wrestle with it. it it's, it's important because it comes up again and again in Scripture. You see, the, the word providence, it's a striking word. It comes from two words, the word uh, provide, which has two parts, which is pro or forward or something that comes before. And then there's the the Latin word vide, which means to see. And so the noun providence means literally this. It's the act of God seeing and providing. All right. So we see this happen in the life of Abraham. Uh, We saw when he was near the sacrifice of his son Isaac, when that was about to happen, he said, on this mountain the Lord did what? He provided. That's the providence of God at work in Abraham's life. I want you to think of it this way. When we talk about the providence of God, it's God literally saying this, I will see to my plans. I'll take care of things. You know, when we have deacons meetings, we, we gather here in the Martha Davis parlor and we sit and we talk about things in our church and, and caring for others in our church. And sometimes there's some, maybe some housekeeping things, some facility issues we need to address. And, and inevitably, as we walk through those things, one of the deacons will pop up or I may say, I'll see to that. In other words, I'm going to take care of that. It's, I see a need and I'm going to provide for meeting that need. When you think about God's providence, that's what I want you to consider. God knows the need. He sees the need for salvation. He sees the need for redemption. And guess what he does? He sees to that need. So we're going to talk about this word throughout the message this morning. But if you're going to define it very simply, it's this way. Providence means this. It's God's knowledge and direction of all things for his glory And our good. It's God's knowledge and direction of all things for His glory and for our good. Now, this brings about a natural tension that I want you to hold on to as we move through Genesis 24. You see, some would hear that definition and they would say, well, well, that means we're somehow God's puppets and he's just pulling the strings, so to speak, and we're just kind of marching to, to how he tells us to move. And, and I would say to you, of course, that's not what this means. There is an element of our response 
to the providence of God. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to somehow alter the plans of God. It means that we walk in step with the plans of God. It means that we respond appropriately to what God is doing around us. This morning, we're going to see eight different ways that characters in this story respond to God's leading. Now, let's be clear. God is the hero of Genesis 24. God is the one who's moving this plan along, but there are some appropriate ways that we are expected to respond, and that is our application this morning. There's eight of these. Let's work through this chapter together. Number one, by faith, we cling to God's providence. By faith, we hold on to it. We fight for it, it would seem. Uh, What I just read to you in Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, this was uh, the tension in Abraham's life. There needed to be a wife for Isaac. Now, Abraham, it could have seemed, could have worked the plan of God along, and he could have solved a couple of things very easily. He could have provided a wife for his son and, by the way, provided some land, and here's how. Culturally, at that time, if if Isaac would have taken a wife from among the Canaanites, guess what would have come with the wife? Land, right? And so, if I'm Abraham, and and probably if you are too, you're looking at the situation and say, all right, I know just how to solve this issue. God promised land, so I'm going to get some land, and oh, we need a wife too, and and all of them are going to come together, and and Abraham, it would seem, was going to work everything out, and that's the way you and I would probably respond. But, But listen, That's not what Abraham does. Two different times, notice there, he says, no, don't don't take a wife for my son from the Canaanites. And he also says twice, don't don't take my son back to the homeland. He's going to stay right here. This is our stake in the ground. We trust that God is going to provide this land. He's staying here. We saw Abraham do something like this, and Genesis chapter 16, you might remember Sarah and Hagar and how Sarah gave Hagar, the maidservant, to Abraham, and it was through that means that they helped the plans of God along. But here, Abraham doesn't do that. Man, how he had matured in his faith, even through some of these last words that he spoke, by the way, in all of the book of Genesis, in verse 7, he says, he will send an angel of the Lord before you. Abraham's faith had grown so much, he, he trusted in God's unseen hand to continue delivering on this promise. He didn't trust in his own ingenuity or his own skills or his own problem-solving abilities. No, he trusted God was going to take care of this. He trusted that God was going to see to it. Now notice how the servant responds as we look at verse 10. Through actions, we demonstrate trust in God's providence. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, the servant took ten of his master's camels and with all kinds of his master's goods in hand, and he, he went to Nahor's town. This is significant. The, the servant says, okay, Abraham, I'm going to take your word for it. Here's, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take what would be the traditional bridal price for this bride for Isaac. He was preparing for God to deliver. We saw this happen just a couple chapters ago in Genesis chapter 22 in verses 7 and 8. That's when, again, Abraham's making his way up the mountain with Isaac, his son. And Isaac looks around and he says, he says Father, I, I, I see the, the wood and, and I see the fire that we got for the sacrifice, but, 
where's the sheep for the burnt offering? And guess what he says? The Lord's going to provide. You see, Abraham took with him all of the things that were a part of that sacrifice, and he trusted that God was going to provide. That's exactly what this servant is doing here. But now notice this third way that we live in response to God's providence. Number three, in prayer, we align our understanding with God's providence. The story moves forward very quickly from verse 10 to verse 11. Verse 10, it's all about that journey. Now, that journey was a long journey, but only one verse is given to that journey. You see, the rest of the chapter is given to how God provides. The story moves forward in verse, verses 11 through 14. Listen to what it says here. It says, At evening, the time when women went out to draw water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. So the servant goes to the well, and he He's going to get water. Notice what he does in verse 12. Lord, God of my master Abraham, he prayed. Make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I am standing here at the spring where the daughters of the men of the town are coming out to draw water. This was a natural place to go find a wife for Isaac, right? All the women were going to be there. Notice what he says. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may drink And who responds, drink and I will give your camel's water also. Let her be the one who you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. This unnamed servant offers a prayer asking for God's direction. By the way, this is the first time in scripture where someone asks for God's direction on anything. But now look at verse 15. Before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca. Before he finished speaking, before he finished praying, Rebecca was there. This tells us a lot about the nature of prayer. This sermon's not all about prayer, so I can't go into great detail here, but I want to at least cover this. Prayer does not alter the plans of God. Instead, prayer aligns our understanding with God's good plans already. Prayer does not alter God's plans. So understand that. When we pray, all we're doing is we're saying, God, I'm asking for you to do what your good will is. And then as we walk with the Lord through those seasons of prayer, we ultimately come to a place as we fervently come before him. Listen, we begin to see, okay, God, what you have in mind, it's certainly got to be good. That's what happens here. He's praying, and as he's praying, before he finishes the prayer, God has already delivered. Let me show you this in another place of Scripture. James chapter 4 and verses 13 through 16. James says this, Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. We're going to spend a year there and carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, listen to this, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and we will do this or that. See that dependence on God's will, trusting in God's will? We say it around here, Lord willing, the creek don't rise. That's literally what's happening here. God, I I so am seeking your face in this that I trust your good will to work itself out. Now listen to verses 16 through 25. Now the girl was very beautiful. Now I find that interesting. He didn't ask for her to be beautiful. 
He just asked for this hardworking character. And the Lord said, hey, by the way, I'll make her beautiful too. She was beautiful and a virgin. No man had been intimate with her. She went down to the spring and filled her jug and she came up. And the servant ran to meet her and he said, now, please let me have a little water from your jug. And she replied, drink, my Lord. And she quickly lowered her jug to her hand and, and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. And the episode plays on. She does exactly what this servant had prayed for. She goes down into this well again and again and again, and she draws water for the camels. Now, this is something, if you look carefully at what happens here, this was indeed uh, her working out her hardworking character before the servant. Because as I study this a little more carefully, it says there he has 10 camels. By the way, those 10 camels, they would drink about 25 gallons of water each. Uh, the water jar only held about three gallons. That's all that you could lift. And, and understand something, the wells back then in these ancient days, it wasn't like Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water and they go up there and they, they lower the bucket down and then they raise it up. It wasn't fun like that. No, ancient wells, they were, they, they were these large holes in the ground, this big pit, and you would walk down some stairs to the bottom and you would scoop up a bucket of water and you'd bring it to the top. So somehow, some way, this young lady made 80 to 100 trips down into that well and back up to the top to follow through on exactly what God had said would happen. Now, some of us will say, well, is chivalry dead? Did, I mean, obviously, this guy could have helped her out. That's what Cherie said when I was reading this to her. But we don't know all the details. I mean, maybe he should have. But nonetheless, God was working out his good plans. But now listen how he responds in verses 26 and 27. Number four, in worship, we acknowledge God's providence. In worship, we, we acknowledge what God has done. Now, I want you to place yourself in the, in the shoes of this unnamed servant. 80 to 100 trips are going on. A few hours pass, and he's watching every trip. And you've got to think his heart is welling with joy, even to the last moment when that last trip is made up. And he's thinking, this is it. Look what God has done. Look what he does in verses 26 and 27. It says, then the man knelt low. And he worshiped the Lord. And he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on this journey to the house of my master's relatives. The overflow of his worship. Listen carefully. There's a point of application for us as well. This was the overflow of this moment in this man's life. He couldn't help but worship God. Worship on Sunday is meant to be a response of what God has already been doing in your life throughout the week. Worship on Sunday is meant to be that expression of you saying a couple of things maybe. Maybe God has seen you through something. And as you sing, you're saying, thank you, Lord. I know that you've been good. It's not for entertainment purposes. No, you can't help but worship because God's been good. Or maybe you're walking through something difficult and, and as we sing about God's goodness and it's only by the cross we sang this morning. Listen, we sing about those things we are assured that he is still with us. That's what this man was doing here, this overflow of worship. 
This worship's not meant to be kept to ourselves, though. Notice this fifth point of application, this fifth response to God's providence. Through testimony, we share about God's providence. Notice what happens in verse 28. The, the narrative shifts a little bit to the response of Rebecca. It says, the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Don't miss that detail. She said, I, I just saw all this happen. He told me about this, and, and I had to go tell about it. He, she had witnessed God's hand at work and had to tell everything God had done. Now look at verse 33, though. The unnamed servant goes with her, and he's there at Laban's house, we find out, and the, which is, you know, this relative. A meal was set before him, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He says, I, I'm not going to eat yet. Because I've got something to tell you. God has done something incredible, and you've got to hear all about this. Some of y'all are worried because we're only at verse 33. Well, guess what? We're jumping all the way to verse 48 right now. 34 through 48, guess what it is? It's him retelling the entire story. That's all it is. I'm not going to read it to you again. He's saying, listen, this is exactly what happened. This is how God provided along the way. Listen, he was telling about God's hand at work in an ordinary event. Don't miss that. But he also knew that God was accomplishing something extraordinary. He could tell about this. And yet we so often fail to tell about the best story of God's providence that this world has ever known. You see, God provided a Savior. And guess what? This entire book, we're only in Genesis. All of this unfolds to provide that Savior. How dare we not share that news? This is good news. It's a story of God's good plan at work to provide a way of salvation for those who seek Him. But now notice this, number six. By grace, we are invited to respond to God's providence. By grace. I want you to see this in verse 49. He tells the whole story again. And there's a transition word in verse 49 that kind of sets up this next scene. We find now, in other words, I've told you everything for this purpose. If you're going to show kindness and faithfulness to my master, tell me. But if not, tell me, and I'm going to go elsewhere. He gets to the point, he says, listen, here's the invitation. Here, here's what has happened. I have no doubt God's been working, but this is up to you, friend. You're going to decide. Now, this is significant because he invites Laban, and again, I've skipped over that detail for this moment here. He invites this man named Laban to respond to God's goodness. Why is that significant? Well, as we look forward, and we're going to cover this in a couple weeks, Laban, we find, was a schemer, he was a manipulator, and he was very greedy. This, this guy was a rotten scoundrel. And yet Laban was invited to respond to what God had done. You know, it's remarkable to me that the faithful servant, this humble man who's worshipped the Lord along the way, the one who's, who's prayed and worshipped, and we're going to see he worships twice actually, he remains unnamed in this entire story. But Laban, the rotten scoundrel, his name is forever memorialized right here in Scripture for us. What does that tell us? It's remarkable that God would 
extend and offer an invitation to you and me is what it tells us. We know this to be true because of what it says in Romans chapter 3 and verses 10 and 12, 10, 10 through 12. Paul writes, as it is written, there is no one righteous, no, not even one. There's no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, no, not even one. Listen, friends, that's me and you. We've done nothing to merit the salvation of God. We've done nothing to merit even the invitation to respond to the salvation of God. You sitting in this room is an act of God's grace. Look how he responds in verse 50. Laban and Bethuel answered, This is from the Lord. We have no choice in this matter. And say, clearly, we've heard. Okay, we get it. God's done something here, and, and, and we're, we're responding to that. He responds with submission to God's goodness. Now, don't make no mistake, verses 51 through 56, if you read that, they try to back out of the deal altogether. <laughs> they sleep on it. The next morning, they get up and say, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> we got some other things we need to work out first. We can't send Rebecca away just like that. Now, isn't that just like us? We respond to God's goodness. We're enthusiastic, and then we begin to back away. But listen, there's so much more to learn from the way Rebecca responds to this as well. Number seven, in humility, we submit to God's providence. We see this in verses 57 through 61. Look at verses 57 and 58 first, though. So they said, this is Laban and Bethuel, they said, they said, let's call the girl and let's ask her opinion. Now, this was unprecedented at this time. Normally, in an arranged marriage, you don't ask the girl. <laughs> Normally, they're going to say, no, she's going with you. But they're trying to back out of the deal. This is the greatest shucking of the responsibility you'll ever see, right? They say, listen, we, we're backing out of this thing, but hey, let's just let her decide. We're sure she's going to want to stay is really what they're thinking. So they called Rebecca and they said to her, will you go with this man? And much to their surprise, notice how she replies in verse 58. She says, I will go. I will go. Three simple words. She had seen God's hand at work. When given an opportunity to reply, she said, I will humbly go. I will submit to this. We see in the New Testament another young lady approached by God. Clearly God had chosen her. Luke chapter 1, we know her as Mary. By God's providence, by his goodness, he had chosen her to be the mother of the Messiah. And when confronted with this, notice what she says in verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. She says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. In humility, in humility, we submit to God's providence. God's good plan continued to unfold as Rebecca humbly responded to God's clear leading. But finally, notice this at the end of the chapter. Number eight, in obedience, we experience God's providence. I want to read verses 62 through 67 to you. This is like the culmination of the love story. This is kind of the happy ending. So you romantics out there, you're going to enjoy this. Listen to how it finishes. Now Isaac was returning from Bir Laharoi, for he was living in the Negev region. In the early evening, Isaac went out to walk in the field, and looking up, he saw camels coming. Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel. At this moment, all you said, aww. 
and asked the servant, who is that man in the field coming to meet us? The servant answered, it's my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. And then the servant told Isaac everything that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah and took Rebekah to be his wife. Isaac loved her and he was comforted after his mother's death. couple things of note here. Back in verse 62, I want you to see this. It says there that Isaac was living in the Negev. That word living means he was abiding. In other words, you saw at the beginning where Abraham said, no, Isaac's not going to leave this place. He's going to stay here. Well, guess what he did? This whole time, all this was unfolding, he stayed right there. And then it says he was coming from this place, and oh, this is so good. Circle that word. I know it's a big Hebrew word, but circle it in your Bible. Bir Laharoi. It's the last time I'm going to say it, Leslie. I promise. I'm sorry. <laughs> last time. Here's what it means. Here's what it means. You ready? It's the God who sees me. It's the God who sees me. So here Isaac was. He's, he's living in that place in obedience, and, and he, he's abiding there, and he's going to this place that literally means the God who sees me what does God's providence mean? Did you remember from the beginning? God says, I'm going to see to it. Remember that? As this unfolded, God saw to his good plans. He saw every one of them through. And it wasn't through some supernatural means. No, it, it was just ordinary things working themselves out. And God had orchestrated every single one of them, and every person here lived in obedience to that. They walked in step with what God was doing. Ultimately, God delivered. And Isaac experienced God's goodness. There's a verse of scripture I read to you at the beginning of the service. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. You see, this isn't just about Isaac. It's not just about Rebecca. It ain't just about Abraham or that rotten scoundrel Laban. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, listen to what it says. And we know that all things, remember God's in control of everything, all things God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. The application this morning is very simple. You've seen these individuals respond to God's leading along the way. How are you responding? Again, you're not going to alter the plans of God. That's not what's going to happen. But there will be a peace of God that's unmistakable. Verse 67 concluded with what? Isaac was comforted. I don't know what you're walking through, but when you know that God is in control of everything... There's a certain peace that comes about you. So take this with you. Take God's providence with you. Our twin girls, they're, uh, they're at their grandparents this weekend. It's a little quieter at our house the next 48 hours. We're enjoying it. They're having a great time. But guess what they took with them when they went to the grandparents' house? Y'all have seen them carry these things around. They're these, these nappy-headed baby dolls. Y'all that know our family, you've seen these things. I mean, they go everywhere with these things. And they take them with them no matter where they go. And by the way, when they go to school, we have to wrestle these things out of the clutches of their white-knuckled fists. <laughs> they take that with them because it comforts them. 
It gives them a certain peace because they've, they've got something with them. You and I have God's providence to take with us everywhere we go. Through the passing of a loved one, through the loss of a job, through financial hardships, through a, an unfortunate medical diagnosis, a, a hard day at work, God is ordering our steps all along the way. Live in response to that. 